Well, as you know, I'm uh, teaching during the summer months. Uh, Jordan and I are teaching on the, uh, on the topic, that's a good question. We've done this a couple times in the past. Um, to, to know what the people in the congregation are thinking, I was uh, challenged one time to uh, ask. Sometimes we don't know what people are thinking because we don't ask, so we asked. And a series of questions were posed from people in the congregation, and a couple rose to the surface, and the one this morning is one of them. How do you trust again in marriage after you have been betrayed? And I will tell you that this is not an easy one. This is a tough one. And uh, I thought about even teaching on it and posing the question because I was fearful that people might get up and walk out thinking that maybe this was their wife that uh, had written the question. And I know that marriage is difficult, and I know that um, couples don't always see eye to eye, and I know that betrayal is a part of marriage, and there are times the betrayal is very, very serious. Sometimes it is not so serious, but the issue of forgiveness enters in, and the issue of trust. Once trust has been broken, how do you restore it? And I think that's a good question, and one that's worth pondering this morning. In my opinion, trust seems to be a companion to love. Trust seems to come out of love. I can't give you chapter and verse on it, but I do know that husbands are commanded to love their wives. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Paul is very clear on that when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also... Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we are to love as Christ has demonstrated his love for the church. And I believe that uh, love produces security in a woman. When a woman is loved, I believe she feels a sense of safety, a sense of trust. Because a man who doesn't love is a, a man who does not love his wife creates uh, all kinds of problems in her heart and in her, uh, in her mind relative to their relationship. And that's why I believe Paul gave one command to a husband. Love her. Love her sacrificially. Love her to the point that you would give up your life for her. And uh, wives have been given one command. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. And later in chapter 5 it says, Submission is demonstrated by respect. A man who's not respected is a man who's frustrated in his relationship with his wife. But when uh, Emerson Egrich was here a few years ago, he taught on the book that he had written, Love and Respect. Love and respect are a two-way street in marriage. When a woman cuts off respect, a husband sometimes compromises his love toward her. And when a man compromises his love toward his wife, she has a tendency to cut off the respect. And the two go hand in hand. And one, when one is cut off, um, there's usually a problem. So husbands love your wives, I believe, is essential because love, unconditional love, produces a sense of security. And when I read 1 Corinthians 13, a passage we won't turn to this morning, but just make reference to it, I hear words and phrases that reflect a... Uh, a pattern of trust. I hear expressions that indicate trust. For example, love is patient, love is kind, 
Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. And I believe love bears and believes and uh, endures and hopes because it trusts. But when trust is broken, the love relationship has been bruised. So a break in trust appears to be consistent with a break in love and the security of the relationship, particularly toward a, uh, that a woman feels in the marriage, has been compromised. And mature love seems to be the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Mature love seems to be evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Christ's love is the work of the Spirit of God within the heart of a believer. And uh, when love is bruised or broken, it often results in the hurt of the Holy Spirit. When love uh, ceases to be uh, communicated in the heart of a man or the heart of a woman or a child, when love is broken, it seems to be a compromise of the work of the Spirit within a person's life. And we have then the hurt of the Spirit, or what Paul calls grieving the Spirit. And with that, we come to the passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. And I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30, 31, and 32. We want to look at this morning three imperatives, three commands that are given here that are important to the believer. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, the Apostle Paul describes the appropriate behavior of believers toward each other in a way that can restore broken trust in marriage. I'm convinced of it. Three commands that are given to believers this morning that can restore trust in a marital relationship. Now, if you've studied the book of Ephesians this morning, it's probably one of the most uh, well-known New Testament books and uh, certainly my favorite. It's a book about the church. And if you were to look at the book as a whole, you would find that it, is, it has six chapters, and the first three chapters talk about the doctrine of the church. And the second three chapters talk about the duty of the church. You start with theology, the first three chapters, and then the application of that theology in chapters 4, 5, and 6. You will notice in chapter 4, verse 1, that Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So as he's talking about the application of doctrine, the first thing he says is, Christian, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. And then if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So there are other expressions that explain how we are to walk or how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to live as believers. But I want you to notice these three because we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, chapter 4, verse 1, and we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-believers walk, and we're to walk in love. And nestled between or in and amongst these three uh, instructions is the text this morning found in verses 30, 31, and 32. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we have the doctrine of the church, the first three chapters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, we have the duty of the church. And here Paul tells us how we are to walk, how we are to conduct ourselves. And then in this section that we, uh, in ver- uh, beginning at verse 17, no, walk no longer as the Gentiles or as the pagans walk. He lays that out and explains what he means by that by saying in verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. He wants us to lay aside the old man, the old self, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To lay aside means to remove. It means to take something off as a person takes off a garment. As you take off your shirt, as you take off your uh, sports jacket, uh, as you remove your clothes. In a similar way, Paul says, I want you to take off uh, these, uh, uh, these these specific things, and he explains what they are. Uh, verse 25, falsehood, anger, verse 26, verse uh, 28, stealing, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. So he says, I want you to lay these things aside, lay aside the old self, verse 22, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23, and verse 24, put on the new self. So when he says, I want you to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, to set your walk, your conduct apart from the way the pagans walk, the way they conduct themselves, I want you to understand that it involves laying aside the old man. And the way you lay aside the old man, it's as simple as taking off your coat. I want you to make up your mind to lay aside the old man and put on the new man, put on the new self. This is the positive response in light of verse 22. So the specifics of what we're to lay aside are explained then in verses 25 to 29. As I mentioned, it includes falsehood. It includes uh, anger, verse 26. And in fact, anger can be good because he says, and, and be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. It is possible to to be angry and let the devil take advantage of that emotional response, is what he's saying. And then he says in verse uh, 28, he who steals, and when he's talking about stealing, he's talking about a person who doesn't work with his hands or with his mind. He isn't productive. He steals from his employer. So he says... uh, A person who is going to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk is going to be a hard worker, verse 28. In verse 29, he's not going to let unwholesome words proceed from his mouth. Taking off the old man, putting on the new man, means that there is a new vocabulary that he uses to express himself when things are going his way and when things are not going so well. So lay aside the old self, put on the new self, and putting on the new self involves a renewal of your mind. So verses 30, 31, and 32 seem to be a summary of this section that begins at verse 17. 
as he talks about the difference between the believer's walk and the walk of the Gentiles. The Christian's walk, the way he conducts himself, and the way the non-believer, the pagan, the Gentile, conducts himself from day-to-day activities. That brings us then to these three imperatives, and the first one found in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The fact that we can grieve God is is an astounding thing. To think that God would care about the likes of us in the first place in light of our sinful condition before Him, a holy and righteous God, the fact that we, whatever we do or attitudes that we have would have some meaning or significance to Him is absolutely shocking. But I'm reminded that a person who is grieved is a person who loves. When he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the assumption here is the Spirit of God can be grieved because the Spirit of God loves you and He loves me. I'm not grieved by someone that I don't care about. If I have no feelings about a person one way or the other, then what they think about me is mildly interesting. But when I love someone, I open myself to the possibility of being grieved by the way they think or the way or the attitudes that they adopt. This is the situation with the Holy Spirit. We grieve Him because He loves us. A person who does not love is not affected by the conduct of another person. As a matter of fact, a person who doesn't feel love will just simply get angry sometimes and become bitter. If I don't care one way or another about this person, I respond with anger or bitterness or maybe even indifference. But here, clearly, the Spirit of God, when He indwells the child of God, clearly is indicating to us He has strong feelings toward you and toward me. Because you cannot grieve someone if that person does not love you and be concerned about your welfare. So the believer's behavior can bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want you to see here when it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It means that we're not to do things that bring the Spirit of God sorrow. And the context seems to indicate that it has something to do with our, with our words, our vocabulary. Again, verse 29 is the context. And verse 30 in the original language begins with and. It's not here in my translation, but and indicates that it's connected to verse 29. How do I grieve the Spirit of God? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Meaning that if I use words that are inappropriate to a child of God, words that are more consistent with the way a Gentile talks, a pagan talks, if I use the same vocabulary as a non-believer in expressing myself toward God and toward other people, I can grieve the Spirit of God. I can crush Him. I can bring him sorrow. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that means to build another person up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
So it means that when I choose words during the week that are unwholesome, and the word literally means rotten, when I use rotten words, and words that are not for the purpose of edifying or building up, and words that are not gracious in their motivation or in their significance, I grieve, I bring sorrow to the Spirit of God within me. What a remarkable insight that Paul gives us here. We are not to grieve the Spirit. And then he says, why? Then the last part of the verse where he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So first of all, the believer's behavior can bring sorrow to the Spirit of God. And secondly, the believer's future is secured by the Holy Spirit. We grieve Him because He loves us, and we grieve Him because He's concerned about our eternal destiny. And there are some things that we can do to bring sorrow into His life. And we need to be careful because He has sealed us for the day of redemption. Now the Bible makes it clear that when I receive the gift of eternal life, one of the things that immediately happens to me, and it may produce an emotional experience, or it may not, in my case it certainly didn't, when I prayed to receive the gift of eternal life, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came to me and began to reside in me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon an individual and then left the individual. He would come upon an individual and then leave that individual. Jesus says, when I leave, the Spirit of God will come and He will be with you, just like He was in the Old Testament. But not only that, He will be in you. We call it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for obvious reasons. When I pray to receive the gift of eternal life, Jesus says he abides with you, the Holy Spirit, and will be in you. I didn't need to ask for it. I don't need to pray for it. It's automatic. It comes to me when I believe, when I repent of my sin, and respond to him in faith. But there's another thing that happens when I receive the gift of eternal life, and that is that I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it says that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Now, in this section, he's talking about um, our spiritual blessings. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. One of those blessings is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, In Him... You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is, a pledge as a who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So one of the spiritual blessings that I receive when I receive the gift of eternal life is the sealing ministry of the Spirit. Again, Paul says here, after, it comes to me after listening, verse 13, having also believed, in other words, I listened to the gospel, I believed the gospel, I responded to the gospel by faith, the Spirit of God indwelt me, but He also seals me. He seals me, verse 13, um, 
by the Holy Spirit who's given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. The Spirit of God within me who seals me is a pledge of my inheritance. It refers to a deposit that guarantees the full amount from God which will be brought to our account. And this account will be fully honored, allowing us to receive our heavenly inheritance, being with Jesus Christ. Verse uh, 30, it says, chapter 4, verse 30 by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the day that uh, we experience release from this life into bless the blessings of heaven with the payment of a price. That's what redemption means, the payment of a price. A price paid for our redemption is the death of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Now notice he concludes by saying to the praise of his glory, chapter 1, verse 14. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit is based on the practice of a king who, send, who would send a document to a destination and he would roll up the scroll, he would roll up the document and drop wax on that cover and then impress it with his ring. And the impression made in that wax sealed the document, and it meant then that that document was secured by uh, Roman authority, and uh, it identified, the document was identified as coming from the king. It meant that no one was to open it. The seal was protection for that document, and that seal assured its eventual arrival at the place at its intended destination. In a similar way, you and I are sealed by God, by the Holy Spirit, when we receive the gift of eternal life. It is the assurance of our safe arrival at our destination. The sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, again we are sealed for the day of redemption, and that's when we arrive at our Father's house. This is consistent with what Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's consistent with what Jesus said in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Double security. Triple security. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, once you come to me, you are secure in my hand because you are ultimately in the Father's hand, and no one messes with the Father. The Father is greater than anyone else. So the fact of the matter is, we are brought into a permanent relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. It means that when we grieve the Holy Spirit, He doesn't leave us. It means that when we use bad vocabulary, He remains within us, but because He loves us, He is hurt because He knows that that vocabulary is not in our best interest. 
He knows that those words are not consistent with what it means to be a child of God. It's that kind of vocabulary that the Gentiles, the pagans use. It's not appropriate for a child of God. So it's important for me to understand that his presence, his permanent presence in my life assures me that I will arrive at my ultimate destination but along the way there are things that I can say, attitudes that I can have that bring him sorrow, grief. It is possible for me to hurt the Holy Spirit. So, I want you to see from this point that it is possible to grieve the Spirit of God by the way we talk or the way we conduct ourselves. So the first commandment is don't, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The second one is found in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. There's the verb along with all malice. Put away from you. Get rid of it. I like the way uh, the New, New International translates it. Get rid of it, pick it up, and carry it away is the, is, the, is the significance of what's being said. In John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist is talking about the, the Lamb of God and his relationship with sin. And he says, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, same verb, who takes away the sin of the world. In, a, in, in the same idea, you and I are to haul away inappropriate behavior from ourselves. We are to take it away. We are not to allow it to remain within us. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And there are some things that are inappropriate for a child of God, including bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Get rid of it, he says. It's consistent with the context here. It's the habitual action that you and I are supposed to be demonstrating. In chapter 4, verse 23, again he says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a present verb, which means I want you to be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. The nature of the Christian life is mind renewal. And the reason, one of the reasons we go to church on Sunday is to have the Word of God presented to us. One of the reasons we go to shepherding groups is to have the Word of God presented to us. Why? Because we need mind renewal. We need to change our minds about some of the things we say with our mouths. We need to change our minds relative to some of the things we do habitually. We need a mind change because there will be no outward change until there's an attitude change on the inside. And so the Christian life is the process of mind renewal. It is a continuous action. He says the same thing in verse 25 when he says, Therefore laying aside falsehood. Don't just do it one time. Be continually laying aside falsehood. So that as a believer, you don't have a reputation that the Gentiles have. And that is, you tell the truth unless it's more convenient to fudge on the truth. A believer ought to tell the truth all the time. All the time. I've told you before about my wife's employer at one time. Who told her, when I get a telephone call, I want you to tell them I'm not here. And my wife says, I won't do that. Carolyn says, I won't do that. I wouldn't tell you a lie. I won't tell the person on the phone a lie. That's, that's the way it ought to be with a child of God who's not grieving the Spirit. 
So, he is telling us here that uh, the renewal of the mind is a continuous, ongoing experience and laying aside falsehood, anger, uh, robbery, or lethargy, rotten vocabulary, it's ongoing. It's something we're to continually be hauling away, knocking it off in our Christian experience. So we're to haul away, first of all, verse uh, 31, we're to haul away bitterness or animosity. Bitterness or animosity is a fleshly frame of mind that keeps a person irritable, crabby. A person who walks around with a scowl on his face and is in a continual state of animosity toward other people. The person is miserable. And a person who's miserable and claims to be a child of God, you can, be, you can bet a person who conducts himself like that is grieving the Spirit of God. Why? Because he was not created or recreated. He was not born again to have that kind of attitude, to have that, that kind of demeanor. Bitterness is the opposite of loving. Bitterness drains the passion from a marriage. It's significant that Paul says in Colossians, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Unique to Colossians. Men, don't be bitter toward your wife. If you're bitter toward your wife, you're grieving the Spirit. When bitterness remains unresolved, it leads to the second word, wrath. And Paul says, haul away your outbursts of temper. That's what wrath means. Wrath is those outbursts of temper. This word refers to the explosive outbursts of anger that drive a wedge between people. Paul says, knock it off. And the reason is because wrath leads to anger. Anger is the same word as used in verse 26 when he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So it is possible to use this kind of anger in a constructive way. In other words, it's anger that's always there, but it's under control. But this deep-flowing rage can flare up at the most inopportune times, the most shocking times. And Paul says, if you don't have control of this deep flowing anger, knock it off, put it away. The next word is clamor. We're to haul away our yelling because that's what clamor means. One commentator called it the cry of strife. Clamor is what fuels the violent arguments in a marriage. The yelling between people who love each other. Paul says, knock off the clamor. And you can do it, but you must choose to do it. So wrath, anger, clamor, slanders the next one, and that's abusive speech. Paul says, haul it away. Get rid of it. Slander refers to the vocabulary that a person uses when he's controlled by his bitterness and his rage. Paul says, don't talk like the Gentiles talk. And then he says, with all malice, put it away from you, haul it away with all, along with all malice. And all malice refers to a vicious disposition. 
This is the wicked, hard, vicious frame of mind that delights in inflicting discomfort, pain, and grief on other people. It's the kind of conduct the Gentiles produce. It's the conduct that we are to no longer embrace. It's no longer to be a part of a Christian's vocabulary. We're to put these options away from ourselves. We're to get rid of it. We're to stop justifying our sinful actions. It means then if you are a spouse, if you're a mate, you, and you reason to yourself, well, I talk this way because you should see the way my mate talks to me. Paul says, don't justify yourself. Knock it off. When bitterness within, within me is left uncontrolled, when bitterness, bitterness is unresolved, it affects my anger, my wrath, my clamor, and my slander. So to get to the root of the problem, Paul says, root out the bitterness. Haul it away from you. And that brings us to the third command. We're not only to stop grieving the Spirit, we're to put these things away from us, verse 31. And the third verb, be kind. Imperative. Command. Be kind. It's not an option. Be kind. It's a command. It means be humane toward one another. This is the action that the joyful, indwelling Holy Spirit places inside of us. It's the response to people that are energized by the Holy Spirit. And he says, put on a heart of compassion. That's what kindness means here. Compassion. Kindness is one of the marks of the fruit of the Spirit. And according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22... And Paul says uh, in chapter 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You can do it. It's a choice you need to make, but you can do it. You can be a kind person. It's a decision that you must make. So these are not qualities that we put on because we feel like it. Because there are times I don't feel like being kind. There are times when I'm upset I don't feel like being kind. But it has nothing to do with my feelings. In fact, in the scriptures we learn that we are to obey. We're to do what we're told to do and let the feelings come. Why? Because feelings are up, feelings are down. Feelings are up, feelings are down. There's no consistency to feelings. So I'm instructed to be obedient. I'm instructed to do the right thing and let the feelings follow because they always do. Feelings follow, proper feelings follow obedience when I'm being energized by the Spirit of God and I'm not grieving Him. So he says, put on a heart of compassion. Be kind to one another. That's a choice, a conscious decision that I must make. Secondly, he says, choose to show consideration. The word there is tender-hearted. Good word. It's a word that's reproduced within us because it's a word that refers to deep feelings of love, compassion, and empathy. Tender-heartedness comes from God. And it's the work of the Spirit of God who indwells me and seals me. 
And when I'm not tender-hearted toward people, I grieve the Spirit. And Paul says, knock it off. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, there's the word, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. One of the hardest things in the Christian life to do is when you are insulted, when you are disrespected by someone, to be kind in response. That is something, humanly speaking, is absolutely impossible. And the only way you can learn to be kind in response to disrespect or insult is to be controlled by the Spirit of God the one who seals you for the day of redemption. If there's any other response other than kindness in your repertoire of emotional responses, Paul says get rid of it. You're grieving the Spirit of God. The only exception is be angry and sin not. It is possible to be angry and not sin. It's called righteous indignation. Jesus got angry for the right reasons. I get angry because my rights are violated. And Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 6, why not choose to be defrauded? Why not make a choice and choose to be defrauded rather than to respond in kind? That's one of the marks of a person who no longer walks as the Gentiles also walk. So he says, put on a heart of compassion, meaning be kind to one another, tender-hearted, meaning be, show consideration. And thirdly, he says, put on the new self of grace, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiveness is showing grace. The word forgiving here is based on the word grace in the original language, charis. The idea here of, is of exercising unearned favor, freely giving, freely giving and forgiving others. It's a choice that we make before the feelings come. I don't feel like forgiving him. doesn't make any difference what you feel. You choose to forgive and let the feelings follow. So forgiveness is showing grace. Forgiveness is like canceling a debt. Luke chapter 7, verse 42. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both, verse 42 says. Forgiveness is like canceling a debt. It means that there's a debt that needs to be paid. We've talked about this before. If you offend me, there is a debt that needs to be paid. When I forgive you, I tell you, you don't owe me anything. I forgive you, and I choose to bear the consequences, the pain of what you did, of what you said. And I let you go scot-free. I'm basically saying, you don't owe me anything. Forgiving a debt means you don't owe me anything. I will bear the cost 
of what you've done, of what you've said. That's why forgiveness is so hard. Because we don't like taking the loss. We believe that person who has offended us needs to bear the cost. But that's the way of the Gentiles. That's not the way of the child of God who's changing the way he walks, who's changing his conduct. We withhold forgiveness because, well, the Gentile wants the debtor to pay. It's reasonable, it's logical, but it's not Christian. Forgiveness is like canceling a debt. Third, forgiveness is choosing to bear the cost of the debt against us. That's why it's so hard. Fourth, forgiveness is something we give to others as we have received from God. We are to forgive in we are to forgive one another as God in Christ also has forgiven us. In other words, God has taught us about forgiveness by helping us see the debt of our sin cost him. For God to forgive me, he basically says, I will bear the consequences of your sin. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. I'll take it on myself. I'll pay for it. And I'll let you go scot-free. So when I forgive others the way I have been forgiven, I'm basically saying, as Jesus says to me, you don't owe me anything. You have been forgiven by grace. So what I do with the rest of my life is not to pay him back. What I do with the rest of my life is my response to the gracious forgiveness that I've been extended. Forgiveness is something we give to others as we have received it from God. Forgiveness releases me from a life of bitterness. I like what someone has said. Withholding forgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the offending party dies. Because what I realize in not forgiving, the person who's hurting is me, not them. Bitterness within my spirit grieves the spirit and it, and it drains my soul of spiritual energy. I've seen believers live a life of bitterness and they become nasty, mean old men and nasty, mean old women before their time. Why? Because that bitterness claws and eats away at everything that God has created to be lovely and beautiful and attractive. Christian, it's not worth it. Don't live in bitterness. Forgiveness releases me from bitterness. Number five, forgiveness is an event and a process. When you forgive of the big one, it means that you choose to forgive today. And tomorrow when those feelings come back and you are upset and you are angry and you are tempted to be bitter, you forgive again. And the next day you forgive again and again and again and again until the sting is gone. You'll never forget. But you can come to a point where the sting of the memory is gone. 
And that's a wonderful feeling. Forgiveness releases me from a life of bitterness. Forgiveness is an event and a process, and forgiveness produces no guarantees. Sometimes I get the question, what guarantees do I have that this will never happen again? You're asking the wrong question. Why? Because as human beings, we fail each other. The only person who does not fail is Jesus. But human beings, being the way we are, we are inconsistent and we're not perfect yet. Someday in the presence of Christ, it'll all come together. But until then, I tell people in premarital counseling, build a bridge of forgiveness between you and your mate. Why? Because your mate is going to need it many times during the years of marriage. And not only that, you're going to need it to get to your mate. Relationship in marriage is built upon the freedom of forgiveness. And marriages begin to die when somebody burns the bridge down. So God lives in us. He urges us to forgive. And He's begging us to get rid of our bitterness, our wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. For our sake, for our own peace of mind, He's instructing us, get rid of it. And our refusal grieves Him. So what is it that stops us? What is it that keeps us from from forgiving? The bottom line has got to be we want to be bitter. We like being bitter. We like the wrath, the anger, we delight in the clamor and we relish the slander. And our malice makes the other person squirm. It keeps us in a position of control when we're bitter. And we mistakenly believe that by withholding forgiveness, we won't be hurt again. We want revenge. And if it means grieving the Holy Spirit, then so be it. I've talked to Christians like that, and so have you. Honestly, we don't want this thing settled. There's the fear that if we forgive, the matter will be resolved and everyone will move on. But we've been hurt and we don't want everybody to move on. We want this matter brought up over and over and over and over again until the flesh is satisfied. And the flesh will never be satisfied. We delight in bringing it back up time and time again, and we get some morbid sense of joy in rubbing the failure in the face of the offender. What's the cost of our choice? We're stressed. We think about it all the time. When we go to bed at night, we think about it as we go to sleep, and when we wake up in the morning, there it is again. When people at church ask us why we're so down and why we're so frustrated, why we're looking at everything backwards and upside down, we tell them everything is fine. There's nothing wrong with me. But the fact of the matter is we cannot hide our bitterness from those who really know us. We're grieving the Spirit 
and we're killing ourselves. And the Spirit of God grieves. There's no love for our mate, there's no trust, and we're miserable. As I wrap it up this morning, I'm out of time. Three questions, and with this I'll quit. Number one, this morning are you grieving the Spirit? Is your vocabulary giving you away? Repent. Stop it. Knock it off. Number two, have you put your bitterness away? Every one of us at times are offended and insulted and hurt by somebody else. Have you put your bitterness away? Third, will you choose to be kind? It's the key to trust. Love is the key to trust. The trust will come back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that's never received the gift of eternal life, that maybe this message is the one the Spirit of God uses to bring conviction and the realization that they're going the wrong way. They're miserable, and everyone around them is miserable. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to pray. And if my words are what you want to tell the Lord, will you respond in the quietness of your heart? Dear Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I confess to you that I'm bitter. I confess to you that I've sinned. I've offended your holiness. And this morning, I want you to know I'm sorry. I ask you to forgive me. I want to go a new direction. I want to go your way. Thank you for saving me. How about you, Christian? Are you bitter? Are you grieving the Spirit? The Spirit of God says, knock it off. You need to conclude this sermon in prayer, and then I'll close. You pray, and then I'll close. Lord, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. Thank you for reminding us of the freedom that comes with forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to forgive as we've been forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? Our words are very important. Together, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.